One of the things that my family and I enjoy together is watching movies. Not every evening is filled with movies, but many of our evenings are filled with movies. And so we love to just kind of hang out and sit and relax and, and kind of veg out a little bit. And so uh, the, the kids enjoy superhero movies. They love the Marvel series. I'm sure some of you have seen the Marvel series. Uh, we watched some uh, The Hobbit. We watched Lord of the Rings last night a little bit. That was fun. Um, I really love the Lord of the Rings series. But what the kids don't like is they don't like watching uh, boring old mom and dad movies, is what they call it. They say, oh no, another boring old mom and dad movie, right? And so it's usually a drama or something that doesn't have any action or anything, you know, and it's full of, you know, great story, but yeah, it could be, yeah, it's maybe one step up or down or below, whatever, but. Uh, but as I was thinking about the movies that we like, and, and maybe the movies that you like, I'm reminded that some of the best stories and the best movies are, are, have elements of highs and lows, good and bad, you know, maybe good versus evil, elements of struggle or elements of disappointment, you know, because life is filled with moments of, of victory and moments of defeat, I think we often connect with stories and books and movies that are much like real life. One of my favorite stories, which was originally a book and now has is, is, is been a movie that's been re remade a couple times, is Les Misrab. Anybody seen Les Misrab or Broadway production? It was a book by Victor Hugo you know, many years ago and uh, it is, was remade just a number of years ago. It's got Hugh Jackman and Russell Crowe. It's, it, it's an awesome movie. But the, the main character in the story is a convict. His name is, is Jean Valjean. And Jean... Valjean spends a total of 19 years in prison, one for stealing. He stole bread out of necessity, but then he tried to escape. And so he spends a total of 19 years in prison. And when Jean Valjean is finally paroled, he's turned away from every inn and every room on account of being a convict. So everybody knew he was a convict. He had papers with him. He would carry with him. They'd say, can I see your papers, your ID? Convict. So he couldn't find a place to stay. And finally, uh, he was taken in overnight by a bishop in the local church. And out of necessity, Jean Valjean, in the darkness of night, he steals some really valuable silver candle holders. And he, he takes them, and he's caught by the police. And in God's great mercy, Jean Valjean is brought back to the bishop and in front of the bishop, and the bishop said, no, actually I gave these to Jean Valjean, which was not true. But again, in God's great mercy and grace, this bishop says, I gave these candlesticks to Jean Valjean. So Jean Valjean is set free. But for fear of his past following him around, Jean Valjean, he's faced, he has to change his identity. He changes his name, in fact. He changes his entire story. You know, eventually he, he turns his life around, but he has to change his story. He has to make himself into an entirely different man just to be able to function. And although he, he vows to never to return the man that he was, his past continues to haunt him. Again, he had to go and create an entirely new story of who he was and where he got where he was. And towards the end of the movie or end of the story, Jean Valjean, he finally breaks down and he finally reveals his true identity after all these years of carrying around this, this different identity. He says, Yes, I was once a thief, I was once a convict, but I'm a different man, I'm a changed man. And so I was reminded of something this week about the story of uh, Jean Valjean, and um, 
I think in many ways, we, we ourselves, we often kind of mirror Jean Valjean's story a little bit. And I think there's things that each one of us, you know, chooses not to share out of, you know, fear of shame or guilt or fear of judgment or rejection. Sometimes we can avoid sharing our true story, our real story, the real us. And this morning, I want to take a look at a passage in the Bible where the writer, the Apostle Paul, he says, I'm not hesitant to tell my story because Paul says his story isn't really his own story. It's actually God's story that he's writing through him. So uh, if you brought your Bibles with you, I'd ask you to turn to 1 Timothy 1, 12-17. 1 Timothy 1, 12-17. I'm going to read it for us here this morning. I thank Jesus Christ, our Lord, who has strengthened me because He considered me faithful, putting me into service. Even though I was previously a blasphemer and persecutor and violent aggressor, yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am the foremost. Yet for this reason I found mercy, so that in me, as the foremost sinner, Jesus Christ might demonstrate His perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in Him for eternal life. Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. So Paul wrote this letter to who was Paul's pastoral understudy was Timothy. So Timothy was considerably younger than Paul and was really kind of Paul's understudy. And so Paul and Timothy were on a mission together. And Paul goes one direction and says, Timothy, you handle church affairs in uh, Ephesus. And so these two men split off knowing they were Yes, better together, but could do God's work separately and cover more ground. So Paul wrote this letter to Timothy, and he said, Timothy, this is how you do church. As you're setting up the church, as you're establishing the church, this is what to do. This is the instruction manual. So this is what Paul, part of what Paul was writing to uh, Timothy. And he says, you know, 1 Timothy, it's instructions on worship, it's characteristics of a church leader, the place of money in the church, um, Again, these were all very foundational things as the first century church was brand new. So they were all wondering, considering, talking, how do we do this church thing? And so again, Paul's letter with the Timothy, it was an instruction manual. Here's what you do. And, and Paul was warning Timothy to be aware of, of false teachers in, in this portion of, of passage as well. There were false teachers in the church and around the church in the first century that said you essentially could be sinless. Interesting, huh? So those that wanted to distort the gospel of Jesus Christ, there were false teachers going around and saying um, that you could be sinless. And, and, and Paul says this. He said there are false teachers that devoted themselves to false doctrines and promoted themselves to myths. So Paul says false doctrines and myths. So be careful, Timothy. And again, one of the major false doctrines that, that Paul was writing his letter to and saying, Timothy, be aware were these folks that said you could be without sin, that you could work yourself, you could 
be in this place of, of, of sinless, kind of achieving this spiritual perfection is what these false teachers claim. And while we know, right, followers of Jesus, we're intended to pursue holiness, right? We're, you know, Scripture says to be holy because He is holy. I don't have any evidence that we will ever be entirely sinless as we walk this earth. As I look in the mirror, as I look around, I'm definitely not a sinless man. I look around, I see sin nature. I see broken people. And so, you know, partly as a response to these false teachers, you know, Paul, he airs his dirty laundry a little bit in this passage. And he says, Timothy, let me tell you about the reality of what's going on. This is who I am. This is who I was. And Paul says, although I'm no longer the man I used to be, let me tell you a little bit about my story, is what Paul says to Timothy. And so, if you're taking notes this morning, or if you're not taking notes, the first point I want to get at is this, is that Paul didn't try to alter his testimony. Paul did not try to edit and alter his testimony. Paul says this, you know, in verse 13, we just read it. He says, I was once a blasphemer, a persecutor, and a violent aggressor. Paul doesn't try to hide or excuse his past or cover up his tracks or say, I had never sinned. He didn't feel the need to edit his story. Paul wrote this down with the intention of being distributed to the churches. He doesn't try to spin his story. He doesn't try to paint himself in the best light possible. Paul says, again, I'm a blasphemer. I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and a violent aggressor. He comes out and says, yep, guilty. You got me. This is who I was, and this is what I did, right? In, in Acts chapter 8, Paul was there when the apostle Stephen was stoned. Paul was there witnessing it. He was a, a witness to this. And, you know, Paul, part of his, part of his job before he met Jesus is he went home to home, church to church, going house to house, putting Christians in prison. And before Paul met Jesus, right, he was not a good man. He was a religious man, but he was not a man that honored God or followed Jesus. He was a very sinful man. And, and Paul says, yeah, you know, God has changed me. But Paul comes out and he says in, in verse 15 and 16, he says it twice. He says, I am still the worst of sinners. I used to be a blasphemer. I used to be a persecutor. I used to be a violent man. I no longer do those things, but I am still the worst of all sinners, is what Paul says. He doesn't use past tense language and say, I used to be the worst of all sinners. I was the worst of all sinners, right? Paul says he is. He used present time language. He says, I'm the foremost. I'm top of the list, guys. Again, he wrote this letter to Timothy, and then Timothy was going to distribute it to the church. I think that was a pretty amazing admission, right? I think... Each of us should be willing to say, yeah, you know what? I still am the worst of all sinners. We don't hear that much around the church walls, right? Guess what, guys? I am the foremost of all sinners, right? That's not something that we hear. But the reality is, is that we are all sinners. Everybody has fallen short of the glory of Jesus, right? And, and, and Paul is saying that although he no longer really engages, right, in the same sort of behavior, he's no longer a persecutor, he's no longer a blasphemer, he is no longer a violent aggressor. He is still a sinful man, filled with a sin nature. So Jesus has redeemed him, but yet he still has a sin nature. He's a changed man, right? Paul, missionary. 
He established churches all over, all over the um, Asia, Middle East. You know, God used Paul in a mighty, mighty way, obviously. Nobody can refute that. He wrote most of the New Testament. But here's this man that says, yes, I was a sinful man. I don't do those things, but yet I am still the worst of all sinners. And I think behind Paul's claim is that just a direct, he just understands God's mercy and grace in his life, right? He says, I used to be that guy. I'm still a sinful man, but only by God's grace am I here today. You know, when, when Paul met Jesus, obviously he became a, a changed man, the book of Acts, you know, and, um, and you know, while Paul was still a sinful man, while he still missed the mark, you know, again, the, the same may be said for us. And as Paul met Jesus, Jesus came into Paul's life in a, in a pretty radical way, obviously. And the, 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 close, the same thing is you know, for us. And when we encounter Jesus, when we meet him personally, the more we can see our sin, that much more evidently, right? The closer we get to Jesus, and the more often we look in the mirror, our, our sin is intended to come to the surface. We'll be willing to admit that we are sinful people. Peter Scazzaro, again, one of my favorite authors, I think I've maybe mentioned him around here, but Peter Scazzaro, um, in his book, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, he says this, he says that we should see ourselves as potentially weaker and more sinful than anyone around us. For we are the chief of all sinners. This is not self-hate, it's not an invitation to abuse, but it is meant to make us kind and gentle as we see ourselves as really the, the chief of all sinners, that we still fall short of the glory of God. It's meant to make us kind and gentle. And I think seeing ourselves just as broken as our neighbor, you know, really that's intended to, to you know, keep us in this place of, or help us find greater levels of compassion and kindness and, and gentleness. I read the news most every day. And I have a hard time when I click onto my news feed and I see what some of our politicians are doing and some of our government entities and some of our Hollywood types. I can't help but feel judgmental. I'll just be honest. Those are people that are often just gripped by sin, right? And this idea that I'm still a sinner, right? I still fall short of the glory of God. I'm still a sinner. That should make me slightly more compassionate, hopefully and kind, and gentler. But I think oftentimes we battle, right? We want to point our fingers at our neighbor and say, oh, at least I'm not as bad as that guy, right? But the reality is we're all sinners. When we see ourselves just as sinful as our neighbors, again, it's intended to move us to a place of humility and gratitude that despite our own sin, that God loves us anyway, right? Even though we're still sinners, God loves us anyway. And Jesus paid for all that junk on the cross. So hopefully, we can look at our neighbor and go, yeah, you know what? It's just a person just gripped by sin. They too fall short of the glory of God, just like me. And I think what stops us from seeing our own sin for what it is, is pride, right? Sometimes we can become prideful. Again, I know when I click on my news feed and I'm looking at the news and I'm like, yeah, at least I'm not doing that. What's What's that? It's pride. It's pride. You know, pride doesn't really allow us to see ourselves accurately. We're busy pointing our fingers right at others or our neighbor or other people going, hey, at least I'm not as bad as that guy. 
That's early pride, right? It gets in our way. We can't see our sin for what it is when we're busy looking at somebody else's sin. Prior to meeting Jesus, you know, prior to Paul's radical conversion, Paul was so prideful, he was really unable to see his sin, right? He went about his merry way, persecuting, throwing Christians in jail, going house to house. And, and, and pride inhibits our ability to see things as they really are, right? We have blinders on when we're prideful. When we're too busy looking out and not in. And in God's great mercy, you know, God did not allow Paul to continue on his merry way. Jesus entered into Paul's life in the most radical of ways and turned Paul's life upside down, right? So Paul did not live in spiritual blindness for the remainder of his days. Jesus came into Paul's life and changed Paul's life forever. In Acts chapter 9, for three full days after encountering Jesus, Luke, Luke writes that scales were on Paul's eyes, right? So for three full days, Paul was blinded, could not see, literally could not see. I think there's an interesting parallel there that I think it was pride. I think God was stripping and taking all of this pride that Paul could not see his own sin until he encountered Jesus Christ. Then it became all available to him to see. I think these scales were representative, again, of Paul's sin and Paul's pride. They inhibited him from seeing his own sin. I think it's the same thing for us, right? Pride gets in the way of us being able to see our own sin. We're too busy pointing out the sin or the, the log in somebody else's eye. You know, I thought I was a pretty patient guy until I got married. I really did. I was like, ah, I'm a pretty patient guy. I got married and I realized how impatient I was. My wife's not here, so I can just kind of say what it's pretty cool. I can use her for all kinds of illustrations. Isn't that cool? Yeah. Oh. You are? I didn't know that. Nobody ever told me that. Yeah, pride, yeah. Ooh, it's getting warm in here. So I thought I was a pretty patient guy until I got married, and then I thought I was a really patient guy until I had kid one, and then kid two, and three, and four, and five, and the reality is I'm, I'm not a very patient man. I really am not. I struggle. I'm not as gracious as I should be. I'm not as patient as... You know, say things I shouldn't. You know, react to my kids in a way that I shouldn't. And and each and every day, I'm just reminded that I'm really just a selfish guy. I'm still the worst of all sinners. I've been redeemed while Jesus Christ has paid for all that junk, right? I don't have to work hard at being a sinner, right? It comes easy. It comes natural. We don't have to work hard at that. And I think there's a weight that's lifted off our shoulders when we're able to look in the mirror and go, yeah, you know what? This is who I am. And we're honest about who we are. We're honest about our struggles and honest about our sin. And we're honest before the Lord. We're honest before each other. There's great freedom in that, but not an easy thing. So here Paul writes this letter and says, I am still the worst of all sinners. I no longer engage in the same behavior, but I'm still a broken, sinful man. I spent um, about four years hanging out with a, a group of Celebrate Recovery folks. And if you ever want to have a radical experience of just transparency 
go to a Celebrate Recovery meeting. So Celebrate Recovery is a 12-step Bible-based recovery program. And I was absolutely amazed how often and frequently, each week, somebody would stand up and say, let me tell you about what I'm battling. Let me tell you about, we're talking about pornography, substance abuse, people lost their jobs, DUIs, you know, in the brink of divorce. 125 people sitting around, standing around, and somebody stands up and says, let me tell you about my story. Amazing. I've never seen people that lived in more freedom. There's freedom in looking in the mirror and saying, this is who I am. This isn't what I've done. This is, this is my story. And I think that's what Paul, Paul is getting at this morning. And the second point I want to make is this, is that Paul's story was really God's story. Paul's story was God's story. You know, Paul didn't write letters to the churches and for them to stay in his diary. He didn't write in his diary and keep it secret under his mattress. Right? We know that because Paul said, this is to the church in Ephesus. This is to the church in Thessalonica. So he wrote everything he wrote down that we have in the Bible was intended to be distributed to the churches, intended to go out. It was made to be read, to look looked at, poured over. Again, this is the instruction manual how to do church in the first century. You know, again, Paul says that his, the contents of, of what he's writing, he says it's, it's, it's going to go to the churches, go to the people that you read it and reflect on it and think about it. May this be your example of what to do. You know, Paul didn't have a whole lot to gain by if he was going to edit his past or if he was going to hide his past. He had he had personal relationships, again, with Timothy, with the churches. He knew them intimately, knew them well. So he had really nothing to gain by trying to hide his past. They knew who he was. They knew what he did. He wasn't fooling anybody. Again, he wrote these letters. He wrote this letter to Timothy and said, Timothy, this is going to go to the church. Let me tell you about who I was, but I'm still the worst of all sinners. You know, Paul's words to the churches were so that the church would be blessed by Paul's words, right? That the church would be glorified. That was the intention of, of Paul's writings, that they would read it and be blessed and, be, and God would be glorified. There was a ripple effect that was intended by Paul's words right here. And this impact the entire community and the entire church. And Paul is radically pretty transparent here, right? Very transparent. One, one pastor and writer called... Paul's words, redemptive vulnerability. It's an interesting term. Vulnerability is kind of a scary word, right? A little bit. Sometimes we feel like if we're going to be vulnerable, it just sounds scary. Oh, I don't want to be vulnerable. We, we often think of vulnerability as being honest at all times, and um, while that's partly true, followers of Jesus are to practice what is called Redemptive vulnerability, similar to sharing your testimony and your story. It's a retelling of your story. It's a retelling of your, your journey and pointing at all the details back to Jesus. Let me tell you what about Jesus has done in my life. You know, redemptive vulnerability is, 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 a, is a much greater purpose, a much more important reason for telling your story. It's the sort, again, the sort of vulnerability that points your story and your journey and what you've done back to God and how He is healing and what He's been doing. 
Now he's knitting together your past. He's taking your mistakes, knitting them together, healing. That's redemptive vulnerability. Again, it's much like telling your story or telling your testimony. You're pointing it back to Jesus and saying, let me tell you about what God has done in my life. And I think like Jean Valjean and, and Lema's Rob, you know, rather than practice redemptive vulnerability, I think our human tendency is to edit our past, right? To try to rewrite our story, try to take all the details and repackage them somehow. And, oh, that's not me, you got the wrong guy. I think we so frequently censor our stories, do we not, right? With our friends and family, and maybe inside these walls, we try to spin it or, you know, try to. And I think the biggest, I think the biggest reason that we do that is fear, right? We feel fearful of being rejected or fearful of judgment or maybe uh, fear of not being found good enough on some level, right? There's this deep fear inside. And again, as I sat with my Celebrate Recovery people and they stood up in front of 100 plus people and said, I'm battling this today. Wow. That's incredible freedom. I think sometimes we walk through the church doors and sometimes we feel like we're, we're here for a job interview, right? We've got our Sunday best on or maybe our resume in hand and kind of edit our stories and tell everybody the good things about what's going on. And But maybe we would use Paul as an example where, where Paul has said, I am still the worst of all sinners. Right? So we know that there's a, an appropriate time, an appropriate place to tell your story and begin to share and engage and you know, I think it would be a little bit awkward if we all stood up and just blurted out everything we've ever done, right? It would be kind of a, be memorable. It would be maybe a little inappropriate in terms of timing, right? But there is an appropriate time and place to begin to share your story and, and you know, practice redemptive vulnerability. Well, I think so often we, we want to be the author of our own stories, right? We want to grab the the pen or we want to grab the paintbrush and we want to be the artist, we want to be the author and the writer and we edit out those very things that maybe God's asking us to share with somebody else. So rather than allowing God to be the author or the artist, we take the pen back or we take the paintbrush back and try to do it ourselves. I think there's never been maybe a more isolated and lonely time in recent history. Anybody else feel that way? I certainly feel that way. Now, if there's ever a more recent time of I think, people feeling discouraged in the church walls and the enemy having a heyday within our local churches, I think it's now. I can't think of a more recent time in, in my lifetime. And I think part of the way that we diffuse the enemy's power and the break of those chains is by telling our stories. Begin to practice redemptive vulnerability. Let me tell you about what Jesus has done in my life. Yeah, I've made a whole lot of mistakes. But the story isn't done. Let me tell you about what he's doing. Let me tell you about what he has done. Ephesians 4.12, Paul reminds us that the church body is designed and encouraged, or designed to encourage one another with the, with the hope that spiritual growth would take place. Ephesians 4.12, encourage one another. Galatians 6.2, Carry each other's burdens. And in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ is what Paul says. We can't be isolated. 
We can't do that. That's where the enemy wants to feed on that, right? Again, he wants to seek, kill, and destroy. I've mentioned that passage every time I've been up here, but I believe that's the enemy's MO. Seek, kill, and destroy. And part of the way we diffuse the enemy's power begins by telling our story. Telling in a way that points to Jesus Christ. The final point I want to make this morning is this from our passage. So if God wasn't done with Paul, God is not done with you. If God was not done with Paul, I want to tell you, I want to remind you that God is not done with you. I think the whole point to our passage this morning is that there's no limit to God's grace. There is no limit to God's grace. God still used a man like Paul, persecutor, blasphemer, violent aggressor, still a sinful man, right? The worst of all sinners. I believe if God used Paul, could use Paul, despite his past, he wants to use every one of us. God's grace is unending, right? And Paul knew his story. He knew his testimony was an example of God's grace. If we look at verse 16 again, if you still have your Bibles open, look at verse 16. Yet for this reason I found mercy, so that in me the foremost sinner, that Christ Jesus might demonstrate His perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in Him for eternal life. Paul is saying, I am the truest example of God's grace. God did not give up on Paul. And we know that he's, despite whatever our past looks like, he is not going to give up on us. God's able to do a mighty work with Paul. Again, the worst of all sinners, he can do anything with us. I think in all the Bible, Paul was one of the most unlikely individuals to come to Jesus, was he not? One of the most absolutely unlikely individuals to come to Jesus. He was a persecutor of the very people that he became, right? Probably the most unlikely man ever to come to Jesus. One of them, I would say. And that's the way that God works, right? He takes some of the unlikely individuals and he turns their lives upside down, right? So the Bible is a collection of, of just unlikely individuals, is it not? Absolutely. You know, God uses the broken. He used Moses. Moses said, you got the wrong man. Take my brother. You got King David, this little shepherd boy, the youngest, the youngest boy in his entire family. The disciples, a bunch of fishermen that were from some place that nobody really cared about, and Paul. So God uses people simply willing to be used by Him, right? He doesn't give up on His people. I love that Paul uses the, the term thankfulness in verse 12. Paul says he is thankful that God is still using him. And I believe the same should be said of us, can be said of us. That we're looking for an area to be thankful that God has not given up on us in His, in his great mercy and grace that He still gives us breath in our lungs Right? Conviction in our heart to give us this moment. So, like Paul, my hope is that we're thankful that the Lord has not given up on us. He's still using us. 
I believe that's something we can be greatly thankful for. And Paul comes out and says, thank you, God. You give me another day, another opportunity. You haven't given up on me. That I might go out and communicate the gospel of Jesus Christ is what Paul says. So God has given us one more day, right, to, to worship him, to love and serve others, to point people to Jesus. Again, I think that's incredible news to think, something to be thankful for today, that he's not given up on us. Yes, we are still the worst of all sinners. But in God's great grace and mercy, he has not given up on us. You know, I've spent plenty of time trying to edit my story or maybe spin my story or take the negative parts out of my story. That's a human condition, a human response, right? We want to often paint ourselves in the best light possible. And I think, again, like Jean Valjean and Lema's Rob, we, we hesitate revealing our identity for being fear of being found out or, or being fear of judgment, right? And what if you find out the real me and you don't like me anymore? It's, I feel rejection. Again, we cannot do that as a body of believers. We have to be willing to share our stories. Practice redemptive vulnerability. I love Paul's question to the church in Galatians. He says, this is Galatians 1.10. Paul says this, he says, Am I trying to win the approval of men or of God? Am, am I trying to please men? If I was trying to please man, I would no longer be a follower, a servant of Christ. Right? If we're interested in pleasing man or pleasing our neighbor, we are no longer simply looking at Jesus Christ, but we're looking at man, we're looking at others for validation or to, you know, for part of our story. We follow Jesus Christ. We're simply interested in pleasing Him, right? And the truth is, guys, that we are all the worst of all sinners. Each of our stories has in it, right, elements of brokenness, elements of sin, pain, struggle, disappointment. And the only way that our stories make sense is to recognize that God is somehow using every bit of our story for His glory. There is nothing, there's no part of our past and our story that God cannot redeem. There is no part that He cannot heal. There is no part that He cannot knit back together. So if you're looking for some sort of radical change, or if you feel like you're editing your story, if you feel like you're carrying around the weight of your past, I want to tell you that there is a place to take those burdens to the feet of Jesus Christ. Jesus says, Come to me, all you weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. There's nothing that can separate for us from the love of Jesus. No matter sin, no matter what sin, big, small, Jesus says, I remember your sins no more. As far as the east is from the west. Your slaves been wiped, wiped clean. If you're, feeling a, if you're carrying a burden of your past, you can cast those burdens again on the feet of Jesus Christ. He died on the cross for your sins. The Bible says that whoever believes in Him shall not perish without eternal life. Again, I believe Jesus wants to redeem every bit of our story. Again, He can heal your hurts, mend your relationships, and fix your mistakes. Hey, remember to cast our burdens on Jesus. 
I'm encouraged by today's passage in that if, if God can use Paul, again, the worst of all sinners, He can use us. God didn't give up on Paul, so we know He's not going to give up on us. Amen? Amen. The first Sunday of, of every month, we, we remember the, the sacrifice that Jesus uh, made on the cross. So I'd like to invite the ushers up. And Jesus tells his people, he says, when you gather together, to remember the sacrifice that he made for them. In a couple minutes, we are corporately going to take the bread and the wine, so please hold on to those when you get those elements.
The Bible says that on the night that Jesus was betrayed, He took the bread, and we had given thanks, He broke the bread, and He said, this is My body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of Me. Let's take the bread together. And in the same way, after supper, Jesus took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in My blood. Do this whenever you drink it, in remembrance of me, for whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Partake. Amen.